Okay, if you're not there already, you can turn to the book of Leviticus, chapter 25. It's on page 173 in the church Bible. You're reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. And Pastor Dale read verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read verses 8 through 23. This is a lengthy, or, you know what, let me read. Yeah, I'll read 8 to 23. Um, 55 verses in this chapter. Um, kind of difficult to try to figure out where to break it, but it is what it is. <laughs> Beginning in verse 8, you also, you are also to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself. Seven times seven years so that you have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years. You shall then sound a ram's horn abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month on the day of atonement. You shall sound a horn all throughout your land. You shall thus set apart as holy the 50th year and proclaim release through the land to all the inhabitants, and it shall be a jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his possession, uh, return to his own possession of land, and each of you shall return to his family. You shall have the 50th year as a jubilee. You shall not sow, you shall not reap. What grows of its own accord, you shall not gather from its untrimmed vines, for it is a jubilee, it shall be holy to you. You shall eat its produce out of the field. On the year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his own possession of land. If you make a sale, moreover, to your companion or buy from your friend's hand, you shall not mistreat one another. Corresponding to the number of years after the jubilee, you shall buy from your companion. He is to sell to you according to the number of years of produce. In proportion to the extent of the years, you shall increase its price. And in proportion to the fewness of the years, you shall diminish its price. For it is the number of crops it produces that he is selling to you. So you shall not mistreat one another. But you shall fear your God, for I am Yahweh your God. Verse 18. You shall thus observe my statutes and keep my judgments, so as to do them, but you, that you may live securely in the land. Then the land will yield its produce, so that you can eat your fill and live securely on it. But if you say... What are we going to eat on the seventh year if we do not sow or gather in our produce? Then I will command my blessing for you in the sixth year that it will bring forth the produce for three years. So you shall sow the eighth year and eat old things from that produce, eating the old until the ninth year when its produce comes in. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are but sojourners and foreigner, foreign residents with me. This is God's ancient holy word. Let's ask him for help. 
Lord God Almighty, we come before you this morning and we read this ancient text with ancient custom and law. And yet, Lord, we are confident that you are the same God. And while times have changed and while we live under the new covenant, there's still abiding principles that we can carry with us. And so, Lord, we pray, we ask for your help that you would instruct us in your holy ways, that we might respond with a heart of faith. We say this in the name of Christ our King. Amen. The Russian author of the 19th century, Leo Tolstoy, wrote a famous, I think it's a short story, entitled, How much land does a man need? Perhaps you've heard of it. How much land does a man need? The main character was a Russian peasant named Pahom. And Pahom, though poor, works very hard. And as the story unfolds, he's able to obtain larger and larger pieces of property. But he's never satisfied with how much land that he owns. And as the story unfolds, he hears of the Bashkirs who own an enormous amount of land and they make an unusual offer to Pahom. This offer to Pahom, I said Pahom, this offer to Pahom is for 1,000 rubles he would pay the Bashkirs and he can have as much land as he's able to mark off in one day during the daylight hours. And so for 1,000 rubles, he can go and mark off as much land as he's physically able, but he's not allowed to use horse. He's not allowed to use donkey. He has to mark it all off on foot. And so... Sure enough, Mr. Pahom takes this offer and once the sun rises, he runs off as far as he can. Now keep in mind, he needs to make it all the way back to his starting point at the end of the day at sunset. And so he runs far off as far as he can and he makes one marker over here and then he runs over here, makes another marker and then just when he thinks that there's no way he's going to make it back in time, he sees this beautiful meadow that he just has to have. And so he thinks, well, if I really book it at the end, I can make it home. And so he runs across this meadow and marks it there. And then he makes a sprint all the way back to the starting point. And he's congratulated by the Baskers And then he drops dead right after sunset. And Tolstoy's point is made, how much does a a man, how much land does a man need? Well, just about the size of his body, six feet deep. It's certainly a parable about greed. A parable... In which 
testifies to the reality of the human heart of wanting and longing for more. Well, God gave laws in ancient Israel to help curb the appetites of man and his accumulation of stuff. And these lands were, these, these laws were related to the land and the accumulation of the land. And the backdrop really of all of this is that God was the one who was giving them the land, namely the promised land, that land of Canaan. It was God's land that he was giving to them. And these laws prohibited really the permanency of mass accumulation of these lands. Each of the different tribes were allotted a different portion of land. And then as you read through the book of Numbers, it goes down to the different clans. And then each individual family would be given a plot of land. But, but that's not where we're at in the story right now. Okay, They haven't yet gone into the land. They're still about 40 years out from the land. And so God is going to give them instructions related to when they come into the land that I believe have tremendous implications for us in the way we relate to our stuff. So let's pick up the story at the beginning of, ver- uh, of, of chapter 25, verse 1. Just by way of reminder, in chapter 23 where those those different feasts of Israel, those annual feasts. And then when we get to chapter 24, these were laws more related to the daily activities in the tabernacle. And then in chapter 25, now we're going to see laws related to, to redemption and land. In fact, the words redemption uh, occur over and over in this chapter as well as in the last chapter, chapter 27. Yes, we are towards the end of our study in Leviticus. It's bittersweet. So chapters 25 and chapters 27 have the repetition of redemption and then sandwiched in between is chapter 26 with blessings and cursings related to Israel's faithfulness to the covenant. So really there's a kind of uh, sandwich chiasm in this last section that, that centers in on the blessings and cursings of chapter 26. But that's a couple weeks out from now. But this section is about redemption. It's about land, okay? And pick it up in verse 1. It says, Yahweh spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai saying. So right away here from go in verse 1, we realize we're actually rewinding the rewinding the clock back in history okay because they have they had moved on from Mount Sinai and God had given them instructions related to the tabernacle and all that we've seen in the first 24 chapters of Leviticus and so the author Moses now goes back to the time when they're at the foot of the mountain and God's giving them instructions for the future when they're in the land Verse 2, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land which I am giving to you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to Yahweh. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in your produce. But the seventh year the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to Yahweh. 
You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. So here, the Lord gives specific instructions to Moses to instruct the people about a Sabbath year. Now this is fascinating, right? This is one of those laws that, that are often forgotten about. And, and, and certainly this law highlights that, the, that, that what we're dealing with here is not merely a weekly Sabbath in ancient Israel. It's a whole Sabbath system. It's a Sabbath system that we saw even with the feasts of Israel. Remember? The feasts of Israel each had a Sabbath element to them. And even the last three feasts, which were in the Sabbath month, the seventh month of the year, the whole month becomes an entire Sabbath. That begins with the the kind of new year, the Feast of Trumpets, and then the, the Day of Atonement, and then that final feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. And so, with the law of ancient Israel, we're not just dealing with the Sabbath day, we're dealing with the Sabbath system. Sabbath years, Sabbath months, Sabbath days on the calendar, not just weekly, but annually with the different festivals. And so, I think this this reminds us that as New Covenant believers, you really can't just kind of grab the weekly Sabbath and bring it over to the new covenant because it's an entire Sabbath system. In other words, to assume that we observe a weekly Sabbath as Christians and not also practice a sabbatical year is actually inconsistent. It goes together. And so every seven years, the ancient Israelites were to exercise a Sabbath of the land. They were not in an agricultural society where every year, you know, it's springtime. Half my garden was tilled yesterday. And some of you have already begun planting your gardens, right? Hoping that there's no frost coming on the horizon. And again, if you had a larger area, you might have an entire farm. And so you, you do this yearly. But then there were specific instructions. Every seventh year, you let that land rest. You're not allowed to plant crops that year. You are to let it rest. The vineyards are not to be pruned for an entire year. Verse 5. What grows of its own accord from your harvest you shall not reap. And your grapes of untrimmed vines you shall not gather. The land shall have a sabbatical year. So there was to be no organized farming during this year. The children of Israel were to behave like nomads. You know what nomads are? You know those ancient peoples that just kind of travel and gather. Travel and gather, right? So every seventh year, now it doesn't mean they weren't allowed to eat. Maybe, you know, there's certain things that are self-seeding or certain, you know, this past year I planted two, uh, this past year, this past month, I planted two fruit trees, okay? And Lord willing, once they start producing fruit, they will produce fruit annually, Okay, so, so the idea was, that, you know, I would be allowed to eat from those fruit trees, but I couldn't be involved in pruning those fruit trees during that seventh year. And there may be certain vines that would produce 
annually, but, but you couldn't be involved in pruning those. So there wasn't to be an active harvesting during this year. Now, that doesn't mean you couldn't build a barn that year. It doesn't mean you couldn't fix your plow or, or make another plow uh, that could be used in the following year. God's not saying you're not to do any work during this entire year. You're just not allowed to work the land. Verse 6. And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be for food. For you and your male and female slaves. And your hired man and your foreign resident. Those who sojourn with you. Even your cattle and your beasts that are in your land shall have all its produce to eat. God is saying that he is going to bring the produce and everybody can partake of it. Everybody. Verse 8. You are also to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself. So not only was there this seventh Every seventh year was a Sabbath year. Now he's, he's, he's looking long-term, generational, you know, which, you know, sometimes something happens once in a lifetime. You know, I think a couple years ago there was a certain eclipse of the sun. It happens, you know, every 70-some years. You know, you look at the calendar, the next one. You know, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And then, you know, you get out the special glasses and you look. And there it was. Okay. We'll do this again 70 years from now. <laughs> so this every seven Sabbath years in the year after this, there's another special year. It says, you are also to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, so, uh, so that you have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years, you shall then sound a ram's horn abroad on the 10th day of the, here we go, the Sabbath month, the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall sound a horn all through your land. Thus you shall set apart as holy the 50th year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you and each of you shall return to his own possession of land and each of you shall return to his family. So, what do we have here? Basically, God through Moses is giving instructions. You count off seven Sabbaths, seven Sabbath years, so that's 49 years, and then in the 50th year, there's a kind of extra Sabbath year that he calls a jubilee. And on the seventh month of this year, on the Day of Atonement, the ram's horn is to be blown, the shofar is to be blown, and it is to be declared a jubilee year. Now, it is interesting. We had Adam Shank here last, last week, and he was giving us some explanation about translation work. This word that comes to us in our English Bibles is jubilee. 
you may think, well, what is Jubilee? It sounds like some kind of candy, right? <laughs> Jubilee. It actually is more of a transliteration than it is a translation. Uh, evidently, William Tyndale and the early English translators, when they came to this word, weren't quite sure what it meant. And so it's actually the Hebrew word yobel, and so they probably just kind of came up yobeli. <laughs> and so we'll call this year yobeli. Uh, but, but it does seem through more contemporary research that it's related to this word yobel is related to the idea of ram's horn and so this is the the ram's horn year the year in which there's an extra sabbath year given here now notice there's some things that are given here that there is to be in verse 10 it says you shall set apart it as holy the 50th year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. Now we'll get on that next week when there's, uh, there was laws related to uh, a, a kind of indentured slavery, indentured servitude uh, that comes up as slavery in our English translation where, where all there's a releasing of debts. That'll be next week. And it shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you shall return to his own possession of land and each shall return to his family. So each tribe is given a section of land out of the 12 tribes. We see that in the book of Numbers and the book of Joshua. And then it went down to the clans and down to the family. And there was to be a returning back to that land. There was a kind of reset button that was given in ancient Israel. That will hopefully become clear as we go along here. Verse 11. You shall have... The 50th year as a jubilee, you shall not sow. You shall not reap what grows of its own accord. You shall not gather from its untrimmed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its produce out of the land. On this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his own possession of land. So again, this was very similar to the Sabbath year and it follows a Sabbath year. So now this is, so you're to count those 49 years and the, the 49th year would have been a Sabbath year and now the 50th. So this is like back to back. This is like double Sabbath years, okay? Now you, already in the reading of scripture you're thinking like, boy, that would make me really nervous, you know? I'm unemployed for an entire year. Now two years, okay, is added here. Verse 14, if you make a sale moreover for your, uh, to your companion or buy from your friend's hand, you shall not mistreat one another. Corresponding to the number of years after the jubilee, you shall buy from your companion. He is to sell to you according to the number of years of produce. In proportion to the extent of the years, you shall increase its price. And in proportion to the fewness of the years, you shall diminish its price. For it is the number of crops it produces that he is selling to you. So what's going on here? We, we have observed, mentioned twice here, during this 50th year, you are to go back to that land that was originally given to you. And now here is a law related to that is regulating 
the, the kind of sale or maybe more accurately the lease of the land until that year of Jubilee. So imagine with me for a moment a fictitious Hebrew man by the name of Hezekiah. Hezekiah got married five years ago. Hezekiah now has four young boys, age four and under. And they are a handful for Mr. and Mrs. Hezekiah. And Hezekiah is working his land, the land that his father gave him, that was passed on from his grandfather, from his great-great-grandfather. And so he grew up on the farm and he's working the land And Hezekiah gets in an accident on the farm. And Hezekiah is not able to continue his work on the farm. And quite naturally, he's in quite a financial dire straits. What's he going to do? He has four boys to feed, a wife to feed, Hezekiah doesn't have any family to help take care of him, so Hezekiah decides it's 15 years until Jubilee. And so he's going to sell his land based upon uh, upon that 15 years of crops that, that somebody could have opportunity to invest in. And he goes to another wealthy guy and he offers to to basically sell his land or lease out his land for this 15 years and he gets a lump sum of money for these 15 years that he's able to feed his family to get a small place for himself to to rent out for him and his family as he's no longer able to do that kind of physical labor that he was once able to do And over those course of 15 years, his boys are growing up, they're getting older, and they're finally of working age, and now comes the year of Jubilee. Hezekiah and his wife and his four children, there's a release of that debt, and they're able to go back to that land that came down from his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather. And while Hezekiah is not able to do the farming work still as he's disabled, his boys are going to work the land, okay? And so this was to happen. Every 50 years, there was a kind of reset. Verse 17, so you shall not mistreat one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am Yahweh your God. So God gives specific instructions highlighting, I am Yahweh. You are to fear me. And, and this is in the context of him saying that the price of the land, the price of the lease, has to be based off of how many years from the previous jubilee it was. You know, so you know maybe 10 years might be you know a thousand shekels whereas one year left in the jubilee may be only a hundred shekels 
but, but there was to be a, a kind of fairness and equity and, and justice in relationship to selling of the land. You weren't to try to hoodwink somebody who maybe didn't know that, that the Jubilee was this far off. The, the point is, is you are to do your business practices under the fear of Yahweh. Verse 18, you shall observe my statutes and keep my judgments so as to do them that you may live securely in the land. Then the land will yield its fruit so that you can eat your fill and live securely on it. But if you say, what are we going to eat on the seventh year? If we do not sow or gather in your produce, that's a good logical question. How am I going to feed my family? This is what God says, verse 21. Then I will command my blessing for you in the sixth year that it will bring forth the produce for three years. So you shall sow the eighth year and eat old things from that produce, eating the old until the ninth year when its produce comes in. What is God saying here? I will give you bumper crops. I will give you extra harvests. You will have crops growing out your ears that you can store up for the next several years. If it's that yearly Sabbath, I will provide to carry you into that eighth year, which again, think it would be that whole eighth, eighth year that you would sow in that eighth year, but it wouldn't be till the end of that eighth year that you would have it. And then even in the Jubilee year, when, when we're going out, really teasing out three years, waiting for the next harvest, God's saying, I will give it to you all the way until the ninth year. You will have plenty to eat. So, what do we learn from this? Three lessons from the Sabbath year and Jubilee. First is to trust the Lord because of his provision. I mean, this is... This is pun intended, low-hanging fruit. This is low-hanging fruit. God is saying, God is promising, I will provide for you, just like he did even with the weekly Sabbath. Remember, as he was providing for them for these 40 years in the desert, how were they eating? They didn't have no crops in the desert. God was bringing heaven down to earth. But he was telling them on that seventh day of the week, on the sixth day, you collect enough for the seventh because I'm not going to bring it on the seventh because you are to rest on the seventh day. Just in the same way God provided in that weekly Sabbath, the manna, so he's saying, I'm going to provide for an entire year. And when it's Jubilee year, I'm going to provide for those two years. This is God promising, God vowing that he will take care of his people. Verse 18 through 22 is beautiful. God, God clarifies the responsibility. Here's the circle of responsibility, your inner circle. You shall thus observe my statutes and keep my judgments so as to do them that you may live securely on the land. God, you do what you're supposed to do. You obey me. You trust me. You believe in me. 
and I will make sure the land is secure. Verse 19, then the land will yield its fruit so that you can eat your fill and live securely on it. But if you say, what are we going to eat for the seventh year if we do not sow or gather in the produce? I will command my blessings for you in the sixth year that it will bring forth the produce for three years. God's saying, I'm going to provide. This is his promise. One commentator says, during the Jubilee year, the food that has been stored in preparation for the event could be consumed along with anything that grew spontaneously from the land, but nothing was to be grown for, the, for food. By this means, God is clearly reasserting his ownership over the land and emphasizing the importance of keeping it holy. In turn, the legislation reminds the Israelites that they are to trust the God who delivered the nation from Egypt in earlier days and provided his chosen with a land in which to live, a trust that extends to his provision for the non-productive years of sabbatical and jubilee. Now, again, (laughs) is God telling you to Every seven years, quit your job. <laughs> Find something new to do here. Is that, is that the application? No, I don't think that's the abiding application. He's not telling you to not do a garden every seven years. You, we're not living in the promised land. But clearly, there is an abiding principle here. God takes care of his people he provides for his own is this not the instruction of our savior in Matthew chapter 6 in the very context when he says stop biting your fingernails and worrying well he doesn't say it exactly like that but you get the point do not worry Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what we will put on. Is not life more than food in your body, more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? He says, look at the birds. They're not budgeting out next year's, uh, you know, food scenario. They're not even looking at the forecast. What's the, you know, what's the uh, supply of worms looking like over the next year? And yet God provides for them. And then he says, an argument from the lesser to the greater. Are you not more valuable than The birds that God provides for. Then he goes on to say, verse 27, which of you by worrying can add add a single cubit to his lifespan? In the words of the theologian, Dr. Phil, how's that working out for you? How's all that worrying working out for you? Really accomplishes a lot, doesn't it? Verse 28, Matthew 6, or why are you so worried about your clothing? 
Observe how the lilies of the field grow, and they do not toil or spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. You worried about having jackets for next year's winter? Look at how God clothes the flowers of the field. Verse 30, but if God so clothes the grass of the field which is, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? That's the issue. Believe, do you trust in me? Do not worry then saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For all these things that Gentiles eagerly seek, but your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But... Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So that while these ancient regulations may not directly apply to us, the principle behind them does. Namely, God provides for his own. This is a word for both the unemployed and the overemployed. (laughs) Right? A word for the unemployed that God will provide, that God has your back, that God will supply. Your needs according to his riches and glory. That while the lions may grow weak and hungry, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. I mean, think about that. The lion may grow weak and hungry. Now, I'm pretty sure lions do okay getting their prey, right? I remember years ago when I was in a game park early in the morning hearing crunching and asking one of the workers in the game park, what is that crunching sound? Oh, that's the lions eating their breakfast. Evidently, there was a lot of bones in that breakfast. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Even the lions may not have enough food to eat, but God will provide for his own. He will give you everything that is needful to ensure that you make it to eternal glory. But also for the overemployed, for those who think that just... And please don't hear me wrong. We should plan. We should save. I mean, read the book of Proverbs and the ant who stores up. We should be prudent. But we ought not to fret and idolatrously throw ourselves into our work as a result of not trusting the Lord and his provision. Yes, plan. Yes, slave. Not slave, save. (laughs) Save. 
But make sure that in your doing that, you do not become enslaved to your stuff. You do not seek ultimate security in your savings account. I mean, after all, doesn't the proverb say that riches, what do they do? They grow wings and they fly away. Gone. That savings account you worked so hard to build up and that government just keeps printing off that funny money. And what used to be a nice cushion ain't so much anymore. That's the nature of stuff. And so God gave these ancient laws to wean people's fingers off of their stuff. To loosen their grip off of trying to accumulate stuff, promising that he will provide for them. Again, this is not encouragement of sloth or laziness. I mean, there's principles we see even in the New Testament. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, as evidently some people were mooching off of everybody being lazy. He said, if a man is not willing to work, then don't give him anything. Don't let him even eat. Let his hunger motivate him to get his rear end in gear. But nonetheless, we are dependent upon the Lord. So let me ask you, child of God, do you trust your Father to provide for you? Do you trust that he will care for you? Or do you think he is uh, kind of a deadbeat who neglects his children? No, my friend. He is a good God. You remember during the days of famine in ancient Israel when God shut up the heavens and it didn't rain for three years? There was Elijah the prophet. And what did the Almighty use to bring him food? A scavenger bird. A raven God summoned. Ravens just, you know, do you ever see a seagull share its lunch? No. It just takes people's lunch. I mean, go to Lake Erie, go to the beach. They steal people's food over and over. Nasty little creatures. And yet God summoned the raven to bring Elijah food every day. Grubhub raven. Special delivery. Not sure if Elijah tipped him. I mean, imagine that. You know, everybody around them starving, but God makes sure his faithful prophet had lunch. Read stories about in church history of someone like George Mueller who's starting orphanages 
and is utterly dependent upon the generosity of God's people to supply the needs. And there would be certain days when there's, there's nothing to feed these hungry mouths. And you remember perhaps the one story of them sitting down at the table and, and, and he has nothing to feed these orphans. And he says, we're going to pray and thank God for whatever he provides. And you can just imagine children looking around thinking, okay. And they say, amen, and there's a knock at the door. And there's a milk delivery guy whose transportation broke down. And he says, I can't deliver today's milk. It's all going to spoil if it just sits here. Can you guys use it? And the God in heaven provides for his own. Friends, God cares for his own. He will provide. Will you trust him? Will you trust him to care for your needs? How does your level of fear and anxiety reflect the kindness of God and his generosity towards you? Our fear and anxiety demonstrates our unbelief. We don't really trust that he's good. That he will care for us. But secondly, trust the Lord because not only of his provision, his possession. His possession. His possession of all things. I mean, that's what's going on here. What lies behind these laws, you know, was the reality. You could lease out this land for X amount of years till the next jubilee, but ultimately it reverts back to the original owner because God himself was the one who gave them that land. They hadn't earned it. He's the owner of the land. He's the ultimate land lord. He's the land king. He's the one who distributed it as he willed. And he was allowing the ancient Hebrews to use it. And again, while we are not ancient Hebrews in this specific kind of covenant relationship where we're living in the promised land, who owns this planet? It's God. He is the king. He is the creator. He is the one who spoke this universe into existence. He is the one who's given you your plot. And all whatever resources you have, he's given it to you. Even down to your body, he gave that to you. It's on lend from him. He says in Psalm 24, verse 1, David writes, The earth is Yahweh's as well as its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. He owns it all. 
Oh, I love Psalm 50 and it's dripping sarcasm where he makes similar statements. The world is mine and all that is in it. And then he says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. I own a cattle on a thousand hills. You think I'm going to order a cheeseburger from you? I own all the beef. I own it all. I don't need anything. Psalm 89.11 The heaven is yours and the earth is also yours. The world in all its fullness, you have founded them. He made them, he owns it. This is also, we see this earlier on in the Torah in Exodus 9.29. And Moses said to him, as soon as I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands to Yahweh. The thunder will cease and there will be, no, there will be hail no longer that you may know that the earth is Yahweh's. So God says, as he rescinds this plague of hail, I'm doing this so that you know I own this deal. I own it all. And I command the hail to go and I command it to stop. Friends, this is a big deal. So we can trust the Lord because he's the owner of everything. So that you are a steward of what God has entrusted to you. You are a steward of your possessions, that they are not ultimately yours. Yes, I believe the Bible teaches, you know, what we call private property rights, and, you know, you're not allowed to steal, but ultimately God is the giver of that. And you are a steward of it. Your children, you do not own them. You have been entrusted with them. You are a steward of them. Your body ultimately is not your body. It's the body that God has given it to you. He is the owner of it. And what you do with it matters. And again, I think this is important because, well... I remember back in my single days when I was periodically given house-sitting duty, okay? You know, when you're house-sitting for somebody, it's not your home. You're trying to be very careful. You know, you don't want to break anything. You don't want the owners to come back and ask, well, what happened over here, you know? So you're, you're... Extra cautious, even more cautious than than your own property because you realize it's not your own property, but yet you have been entrusted with it and you want to take care of it well. In a similar way, all of our property is ultimately the Lord's on loan that he gives for us to use for his purposes. Whether much or whether little, It's his. And so how are you using it? How are you using it for his glory? But not only should we trust the Lord because of his provision, because of his possession, but thirdly, trust the Lord because his promise, his promise of the future. 
Jay Skler, one of the commentators on this passage, says the, the year of Jubilee looks backwards to Eden and forwards to heaven. Well, how so back to Eden? Remember, even one of the initial curses that God gives because of Adam and Eve's rebellion was related to the land, right? Cursed is the ground. There will be thorns and thistles. That one of the realities when sin entered into the world, the land was not as it should be. But God was calling for a rest of the land every seven years for it to be devoted to him as a reminder that it's his land. And so it would point back to Eden and just as Israel's And we'll see this especially when we get to chapter 26. When God calls Israel to be faithful to him and they will dwell securely in the land. And if they rebel against him, what would he promise to do? To vomit them out of the land just like he vomited Adam and Eve out of Eden. So that the land becomes another kind of picture of Eden that takes us backwards but also forwards. To the eternal jubilee, to the eternal rest, to the eternal reset. Again, one commentator says the picture that emerges takes us back to Eden, people living securely in God's garden, having their needs met, walking in obedient fellowship with the Lord. This has always been the Lord's intent for humanity, and now Israel's privilege with showing the nations this vision of Eden and inviting them to experience it. But sadly and tragically... Israel didn't obey these laws as they were supposed to. In fact, they did not, at least later in Israel's history, it was evidently for at least some 500 years that they did not practice the Sabbath year. And in 2 Chronicles 36, 21, to fulfill the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had made up For its Sabbaths, all the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were fulfilled. So evidently, it was at least 70 Sabbath years that Israel disobeyed. And so God said, you don't want to give the land rest? I will kick you out of the land and it will have rest. And this rest, as well, points forward. Because by the time we get to the New Testament, clearly the author of Hebrews speaks of the promised land as a land of rest. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 4, we see this even in the book of Joshua, remember? The rest when they would go into the land, the rest, that repeated word over and over. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1, let us, therefore let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering rest, any one of you may seem to have fallen short of it. For indeed, if we had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they also, but the word that was heard did not profit those 
who were not united with faith among those who heard. So the author of Hebrews is, he keeps going back to the old covenant and comparing it with the new covenant. And he's telling his audience, he says, be careful that you not enter into God's rest. That you don't make it to the promised land. Not the land of Canaan, but the future eternal promised land. Verse 3, for if we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken somewhere in this way concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 6, therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again determines a certain today. Today, saying, through David, after so long a time, just as has it been before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. What the author of Hebrews is saying here is that the rest that was promised in the promised land was not ultimately the rest that it's pointing to. It's the rest of the eternal Canaan, the eternal promised land. Verse 9, here he concludes, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered... His rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall into the same example of of disobedience. The author of Hebrews is saying, he's warning these professing believers, he's saying, make sure you enter into this eternal rest by resting from your good works. That the Sabbath day and the Sabbath year and even the double Sabbath year of Jubilee was a promise of God of an eternal Canaan for those who rest from their good works and trust in the finished work of Jesus. So it's no wonder that the Lord Jesus himself when he looked upon the crowd of people he says to them in Matthew chapter 11 come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and you will find rest. Take my yoke upon you For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You will find rest for your souls. Friend, are you resting in Jesus? Is he your hope to get to the eternal Canaan? My friend, get off the treadmill of good works and rest in Jesus in his perfect saving work. Don't think that you can do it on your own if you just clean up my act and do enough stuff that God will accept you on the basis of your own performance. Friend, you can't do enough. 
You must rest in Jesus and his perfect saving work. And God promises an eternal promised land for those who rest in Jesus. An eternal Sabbath for those who exercise their Sabbath rest in Jesus. God will provide with his promise. Again, the author of Hebrews speaks of Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, and remember what Abraham was promised, a promise, land. When he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And when he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith, he sojourned in the land of promise as a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he, that is Abraham, was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. The land of Canaan was a picture and a promise of an ultimate land, a city whose builder and maker is God, an eternal Canaan. This is why the 18th century poet William Cooper would write this, and we'll close with this. The time of rest, the promised Sabbath comes. Rivers of gladness water all the earth and clothe all dimes with beauty. The reproach of bareness is past. The fruitful field laughs with abundance and the land once lean or fertile only in its own disgrace, exalts to see its thirsty curse repealed. The various seasons woven into one. The garden feels no blight and needs no fence, for there is none to covet. All are full. The lion and the leopard and the bear graze with the fearless flocks. One song employs all nations and all cry, Worthy is the lamb for he was slain for us. The dwellers of the valleys and on the rocks shout to each other and the mountaintops from distant mountains catch the flying joy till nation after nation taught the strain. Earth rolls the rapturous Hosanna round. God's eternal rest. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank you that these ancient laws again point us to glorious realities that we find some fulfilled already, some to be fulfilled. Oh Lord, what a land that will be. A new heavens and a new earth. An abundant land. All purchased by the blood of the Lamb. In whose name we pray. Amen.